Welcome to the Money Metals Midweek Memo. News and commentary relating to sound money, the precious metals markets, and the economy. I'm your host, Mike Meharry. Thanks so much for tuning in. You know, they say there are only two things certain in life, death and taxes. The difference is we only die once. Well, with a few miraculous exceptions, but taxes, we pay them over and over and over and over again. Pause for just a moment and think about how many taxes there actually are. I mean, you can start with the obvious ones, right? You've got your income tax, your sales tax, your property tax. I mean, that seems like enough, right? But there are a bajillion other taxes. You've got your payroll taxes like Medicare, Social Security, unemployment insurance. Then there are the hidden taxes that you pay without even realizing it. Just look at your cell phone or your cable bill. Those things are chalked full of taxes. You hand Uncle Sam over 18 cents per gallon every time you fill up your gas tank. On top of that, states levy additional fuel taxes. Here in Florida, we pay about 26 cents per gallon in state taxes. But that's not all. There are tariffs and corporate taxes that get passed along to consumers. You've got fees and tolls that you pay for specific government services. You have capital gains taxes, excess income taxes, dividend taxes, inheritance taxes, gift taxes. I mean, the list goes on and on, right? So you would think that with all of these revenue sources, government would be like the most amazing, efficient thing in the entire world. And of course, it's not. You know, it's funny. Funny odd, not funny ha-ha. That people call taxes the price we pay for a civilized society. What exactly is civilized about taxation? I mean... Government literally extorts money for you and then spends it on a lot of things that you don't want. I mean, I don't want to pay for a war in Ukraine, but here we are. (laughs) That is supposed to be the pinnacle of civilization. Yeah, I question that one. And if all of that wasn't nutty enough, even with all of this income pouring in, virtually every government is running massive deficits. Look at the US. The national debt is above $34 trillion right now. In just the first quarter of fiscal 2024, the Biden administration managed to run a half a trillion dollar deficit. So on top of all of the taxes, governments are borrowing trillions of dollars. Government is milking you dry, but it needs more. So enter the most insidious of all the hidden taxes, the inflation tax. Now, it was kind of a slow news week, so I'm going to explain exactly what I mean when I say inflation is a tax, and arguably the most insidious tax. By the way, gold managed to hold $2,000 per ounce support in the latest sell-off, which was caused by nervousness about interest rate cuts. As I talked about last week, the Federal Reserve ran some open mouth operations. They got out there and talked about how inflation isn't quite beat and we shouldn't get 
ahead of ourselves. And that made people think that rate cuts might come later than hoped for. But gold weathered that storm pretty well in this morning. It's actually knocking on the door of $2,050 per ounce. And I guess the other news of the week was we once again dodged a government shutdown with a short-term funding extension. And, you know, this is indicative of the fact that everybody knows this budget trajectory is unsustainable, but nobody has the will to do anything about it. They just keep kicking the can down the road. So we can expect the inflation tax to continue. And yes, inflation is a tax. Now, most people don't realize it. I mean, heck, most of the time, we don't even really realize that we're paying it. You know, the only reason the recent spate of price inflation was a problem for politicians is you realized you were paying it and it made you mad. Here's something everybody needs to wrap their heads around. Our tax burden isn't what the government collects in taxes. It's not what we're paying when we fork out money for that big list I just gave you a few minutes ago. Our tax burden is what the government spends. Every single dollar of government spending has to be paid for by somebody else, right? The government isn't producing wealth. It doesn't do anything other than collect money from you and me. So anytime it spends money, it has to collect that money. It has to take it from somebody else first. If the government spends a dime, that dime has to come out of somebody's pocket. So there are basically two ways that the government pays for stuff. The first way is direct taxation. I would argue this is the most honest way. The government collects taxes and then it spends the money. Money in, money out. But of course, direct taxation isn't particularly popular. I mean, yeah, some people think it's cool to stick other people with taxes. You know, like there's a lot of people who want to tax billionaires or they're perfectly happy to tax, quote, greedy corporations because they imagine that those taxes aren't going to impact them. But when they have to pay the taxes themselves, there is never a whole lot of support right? We never want taxes on the middle class. And realistically, if we were going to pay for government with taxes, you got to tax the middle class. Politicians know that there isn't much support for raising taxes. Their main goal is to get elected. So they want you to like them. By them, I mean themselves, not the taxes. So what's the best way to get somebody to like you? Give them money. So you'll be far more likely to hear politicians yapping about relieving your tax burden and giving you more goodies than it is to hear them talk about covering their spending with higher taxes. So fortunately, if you're a politician, you don't have to raise taxes. You can just borrow money. That's the second way that government finances its spending. It borrows money. The government sells bonds to willing lenders. In effect, this pushes taxation into the future, right? It's a big, kick, a big game of kick the can. Of course, eventually, the people who buy the bonds, the lenders, they have to be paid back. That money has got to come from the taxpayer of the future. Meanwhile, the taxpayer of today still has to pay the interest on the borrowed money. Nevertheless, borrowing is more popular with politicians because it is perceived as less painful. 
But borrowing actually costs us more in the long run, right? Right now, the U.S. government is paying more for interest expense each month than it is for national defense. I mentioned the national debt, $34 trillion. That's a trillion with a T. And, I mean, it's really a lot more than that when you factor in unfunded mandates, stuff the government has promised to pay for in the future. The real debt, when you factor in all of the government's obligations, runs into the hundreds of trillions of dollars. Now, you do realize they'll never pay that back, right? There is no way that the government can ever collect enough taxes to bring the debt back to zero. Just consider this, according to the debt clock, every American citizen would have to write a check for $101,362 in order to pay off the debt. Ain't gonna happen. I mean, I don't have $101,000 lying in my couch cushions, do you? So instead of facing reality, the government is financing this borrow and spend system with the inflation tax. By devaluing your money, the government has a little easier time managing this massive debt. Think about it this way. If I borrow $100 from you today, and over the next year, price inflation is 10%, well, I'll only lose $90 of purchasing power when I pay you back in the future. The more inflation goes up, the more the value of that loan in real terms shrinks as we move into the future. It becomes less of a burden. Inflation goes up, I've got more money, that loan is worth less. You can see how it just kind of shrinks the debt. The process of creating price inflation is also necessary to keep this house of cards from falling over. And here's how it works. If the government pays for stuff by collecting taxes, the money comes right out of your pocket, right? The government takes 100 bucks out of your pocket and hands it to somebody else. In this transaction, you're $100 poorer, but somebody somewhere, probably a defense contractor, is $100 richer. The key here is you can't spend it because the government took it and gave it to somebody else. Your standard of living, your purchasing power goes down. You have less money to spend. This is why politicians never run around touting the virtue of tax increases and would prefer to avoid them. So instead, the government borrows the money. In this scenario, people voluntarily hand the government money to spend today with the expectation that they'll get paid back tomorrow. So in the short run, it's a win-win, right? The defense contractor gets his money to spend, and you get to keep your money and spend it. All is good, right? Except there is a limit to how much money people will loan the government. As government issues more and more bonds, demand for those bonds drops. It's basic economics 101. So as demand falls, the price of bonds fall. Interest rates are the inverse of bond prices. So as bond prices drop, yields rise. And you think about it this way. Demand is dropping, so you need to be incentivized to buy the bonds. So they're going to raise the interest rate in order to entice you to take on that risk, and they're going to lower the price of the bond. So again, it's, it's basic economic supply and demand. In practical terms, though, for the government, that means their borrowing costs are going up, right? As yields rise, they're having to pay more 
interest expense, and that's a problem. As I've already mentioned, we're already to the point that we're spending more just to service the debt than we are on national defense. So enter the Federal Reserve. The central bank can buy bonds on the open market, stick them on its balance sheet. Basically, what it's doing is it's creating artificial demand for bonds in the marketplace. That means prices will stay higher, and conversely, interest rates will stay lower than they otherwise would have. I always put it this way. The Federal Reserve has its big, fat thumb on the bond market. The clever part of this scheme is that the Fed buys these bonds with money it creates out of thin air. This is what we mean when we say the Fed is printing money, right? It's not that they're down in the basement of the Eccles building running off $100 bills. The Fed is creating digital money that it basically just hands to the banks in return for these treasury bonds. It's money creation. This whole process is called debt monetization. The Fed is literally transforming the U.S. debt into cash and then injecting that cash into the economy. Now, theoretically, the Fed would only hold these bonds temporarily. And then it wouldn't be debt monetization, right? At some point, the Fed would sell the bonds back into the market. It would suck up that excess cash. When Ben Bernanke launched the first round of quantitative easing in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis, he swore up and down that it was not debt monetization. He said it was an emergency measure and it would be unwound. Now, you'll be shocked to learn it was never unwound. Before 2008, the Fed's balance sheet was in the $800 billion neighborhood. After three rounds of quantitative easing during the Great Recession, that balance sheet was up to almost $4.9 trillion. Now, the Fed did try to shrink that down in 2017, 10 years later. It did start to sell some of those bonds. In fact, in 2018, the Fed claimed balance sheet reduction was on, quote, autopilot. Now, autopilot didn't last very long. In the fall of 2018, the economy got wobbly. The stock market crashed. You might remember, uh, remember that. The last interest rate hike in that tightening cycle, which didn't last very long, was in December of 2018. They put rate hikes on pause. And then by 2019, the Fed was back to interest rate cuts and it was running quantitative easing again. Now, it didn't call it quantitative easing. It made up a new name for it, but that's exactly what it was. The Fed was buying bonds with money created out of thin air. Keep in mind, this was before the pandemic. When the government started shutting everything down, well, then the Fed put QE on steroids. And by the time it was all said and done, the Fed balance sheet was just a tad under $9 trillion. So think about that. Go back to 2008, we're at $800 billion. We are now at just under $9 trillion. That's a lot of debt monetization. In fact, at the height of the pandemic, the Fed was monetizing nearly all of the debt. So during this tightening cycle, because we had to fight inflation, the Fed has been trying to get that balance sheet down. It's been doing quantitative tightening. As of today, the balance sheet is about $7.7 .7 trillion. Now, my guess is they're about done. 
I mean, if the central bank couldn't tighten things up without wrecking the economy back in 2018, why does anybody think it can do it now? I mean, there's more debt. There's more malinvestment. In fact, I'm convinced that the COVID pandemic actually saved the government's bacon. We were on, a, on our way to an economic crisis back in 2019. The pandemic let them paper it over with extreme monetary policy. It gave them the excuse to cut rates all the way to zero again and run that massive quantitative easing program. And get this, even if the Fed managed to keep up the current rate of balance sheet reduction, there's no economic crisis, no recession. They can just keep plunging ahead, shrinking the balance sheet. Even then, it would take about five and a half more years for the Fed to roll off all of that COVID debt monetization. That would still leave the entirety of the debt monetization done during the Great Recession through those temporary programs Bernanke promised us. So debt monetization is the root of the inflation tax. The Fed creates money that devalues the money that's already in your pocket, right? Prices rise. You pay more for everything. And the sad thing is, most of the time, you don't even notice it. The only reason you felt price inflation so keenly over the last two years is because they basically went too far during COVID. And now, of course, they're going to look back and they're going to say, well, we had to. It was an emergency because, you know, there's always a reason. But that's the reality of it. They went too far. Price inflation manifested itself. You got mad, so they had to cut interest rates. They had to start doing balance sheet reduction. Now, think about what happened in practice. The government handed out trillions of dollars without taking any money from you in taxes. Your purchasing power, at least in nominal dollar terms, didn't diminish. In fact, with the stimulus checks, your purchasing power actually increased. But you had millions of people out there getting government money to spend. I mean, we all got it, right? Meanwhile, nobody's producing anything. So we have less stuff. We've got more money chasing that stuff. All of these people with extra cash were competing with each other to buy that limited amount of stuff and that bid prices higher. Demand goes up, prices go up. Everything becomes more expensive. That's price inflation. So instead of the government taking your money in taxes, the government takes away the purchasing power of your money. And that's a tax. And that tax is eating away your wealth. Now, ironically, you're probably making more money today than you were a couple of years ago. But even with your pay raises, you can't buy as much stuff as you did in 2019. After a stimulus-fueled peak during the pandemic, real hourly wages, so that's wages that are adjusted for price inflation as calculated by the CPI, real wages plummeted. They fell month after month. For nearly two years, month after month, real wages fell. I'll give you an example. Between September 2021 and September 2022, workers got a 5.2% raise in nominal terms. Sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, I take a 5.2% raise. But when you factor in price inflation, you get real wages, and real wages declined by 3%. So in other words, you got a 3% pay cut during that 12-month period 
even though technically you got a 5.2% raise. And the reality of this is even worse, right? Those numbers are based on a government-rigged consumer price index. Price inflation is at least double the official rate if we use an honest CPI formula. So that means the decline in real wages is close to double what they're telling you as well. So when I say real wages declined by 3%, more realistically, they declined by 6%, if not more than that. It wasn't until the second quarter of 2022 that real wages started to play catch up with soaring costs. But even today, real wages have not recovered to pre-pandemic levels. In terms of real purchasing power, you still have less today than you did back in 2019. Now pause and think about what that means for your family. You're working just as hard as you were in 2019, right? You're probably working harder. You know, there's a lot of people out there that have taken on second, even third jobs in order to make ends meet. That's part of why you see these big increases in the job numbers, because Every time somebody goes out there and gets a job delivering pizza at night to help keep up with all of their expenses, that counts as a new job. And Joe Biden gets to get up on the podium and celebrate how he's creating all of these jobs. The jobs are being created because Americans are under a great deal of economic stress. But you're working harder and you probably got rewarded with a pay raise, but you still can't afford as many goods or services today as you did then. And you know, this kind of undercuts the popular narrative when it comes to price inflation. This drives me crazy because they'll actually get out there and tell you, well, inflation is good for you. It's good for the economy. And it really doesn't hurt you any because your wages are going to rise along with prices. Yeah, you do have to pay more for everything, but ostensibly you're earning more money. So it's a wash. You're no worse off. So quit complaining. Now, of course, you know you are worse off because you're living it and the data proves it. The truth is earnings rarely rise at the same pace as prices. Wages almost always lag. That means price inflation puts a significant squeeze on your pocketbook, at least in the short term, until if your earnings catch up. And if you happen to be somebody living on a fixed income, or maybe you're retired, you're living in your savings, you're really screwed. Because inflation is rapidly eating away your purchasing power, but your income streams aren't rising at all. Price inflation always causes the most pain for the poor and the elderly. But the government people, along with their supporting caste in the corporate media and in academia, they need the inflation tax. So they're going to keep telling you that everything is fine. Everything's not fine. It's ridiculous. Now, you've probably noticed that the Federal Reserve operates with a stated policy to maintain price inflation at 2%. Right? They're not telling you, hey, we're going to get rid of inflation. They're not telling you, hey, we're going to have deflation so you you get some relief and you pay less. No. The stated policy is to maintain inflation at a 2% clip. This is supposedly like the ideal... CPI rate. If we get 2%, it is lollipops and unicorns, cotton candy in the sky. Now, by the way, nobody can actually tell you why 
2% is the magic number? Ask any economist. They can't tell you. There's no reason. They just pulled it out of the, out of the air, right? You got to take their word for it. It's the perfect policy, 2%. So regardless, your purchasing power is by design supposed to, uh, supposed to decrease by 2% every single year. Now, I don't, you know, 2% might not sound like a lot, but consider 2% becomes 20% loss of purchasing power every single decade. That starts to sound a little bit more significant, right? And of course, it's much worse than this during inflationary cycles like the one we just experienced. And I have a gut feeling we're going to experience more and more of those as debt monetization becomes more and more necessary in order to maintain this massive national debt, to maintain the borrowing and spending. They're going to have to monetize more debt. That's just it's the only way they can do it. So that means more money creation. That means more price inflation. But, you know, even though Americans are continuing to chase rising prices despite the fact that we're all struggling to make ends meet to earn enough money to keep up even with the basic increase in prices economists keep telling us american consumers are healthy you hear that all the time healthy consumers healthy consumers are out there spending money Retail sales have generally increased over the last couple of years. So the argument is, well, if people are still spending money, retail sales are still going up, what's the problem? Well, you have to ask the question, how is this possible? Real wages are declining, prices are going up. How is it that people are spending all of this money? Well, the answer is credit cards. In effect, we are all borrowing money so the government can keep borrowing money. The reality is declining real wages reflect what the U.S. government and the Federal Reserve have done to your money. And this was inevitable when you have a fiat currency. Fiat currency is detached from real money like gold or silver. It's backed by nothing but government promises. And I don't need any government promises, so it's not much backing, right? President Richard Nixon severed the dollar from its last connection to the gold standard back in 1971. This process actually started long before that. I would argue Franklin D. Roosevelt was kind of the architect of that. But Nixon delivered the killing blow in 71. And when he announced the closing of the gold window, he said, quote, Let me lay to rest this boogaboo of what is called devaluation. And he promised, your dollar will be worth just as much as it is today. Um, yeah, okay. Every word out of Nixon's mouth, that was the boogaboo. Boogaboo is a nice term for BS. <laughs> he lied. Based on the CPI calculator, the dollar has lost more than 85% of its value since that fateful day. The purchasing power of a 1971 dollar equals about 13 cents today. Now, you can see why government loves this, right? That means that a, a dollar borrowed back in 1971 is only worth about 13 cents today. That means their debt has gone down in real terms. Meanwhile, the dollar value of gold 
increased from $35 an ounce, which was the set price back in 1971. It went from $35 an ounce to over $2,000 an ounce today. In percentage terms, that is a 5,614% increase. And this underscores the importance of preserving your wealth with real monies. If you just stick dollars in the bank or stick dollars under your mattresses, your purchasing power will continue to erode day after day after day. This is by design. It is on purpose. It's what the government wants. They don't want you to notice it. They're trying to walk that tightrope, right? They want inflation to be high enough to help them maintain all of this borrowing and spending, but they don't want it to get too high so that you get mad. The reality is, this is unsustainable. Price inflation is going to get too high and you are going to get mad. And if they continue on this trajectory, there is going to be a currency collapse. This is unsustainable. Now, people say all the time, well, Mike, you know, we've been talking about the national debt since the 90s. Remember Newt Gingrich? I mean, that was his big thing, the national debt. And it was like fractions of what it is today. So we've added all of this debt. Nothing happened. And then we've got the, uh, the uh, MMT people, the modern monetary theory, which is basically, well, we can just overwrite the typical economic rules and we can just create and print money forever because we have the reserve currency, blah, blah, blah. First off, you're not going to be the reserve currency forever. That's one thing. But second off, it's just not true. Everybody knows that if you keep creating money out of thin air and injecting it into the economy, you're going to get price inflation and eventually it's going to become overwhelming. So again, it's a matter of policy. So don't let them fool you. None of this is okay. You're not fine. Inflation is not good for you. You need real money. You can protect yourself by holding real money. So this might be a good time to contact the folks over at Money Metals. You can call 800-800-1865. You can chat with them online. You can actually order stuff right from our website. But if you want to talk to somebody, Give them a call today because they can help you see how maybe precious metals might fit into your portfolio, how precious metals can help preserve your wealth in the midst of this intentional policy to devalue your wealth. So do it today. Give them a call. 800-800-1865. And with that, that's a wrap for this episode of Money Metals Midweek Memo. You can get more information about stuff that I've talked about and more news over at moneymetals.com news. And if you want, you can get the latest news right in your inbox. Make sure you sign up on our email list. We'll send you articles. We'll send you good information, deals. So do that today. Of course, you can subscribe to the Midweek Memo on your favorite podcasting platform. And make sure you tune into our Market Wrap podcast on Fridays. I really do appreciate you listening to the show. I hope you have a fantastic rest of your week. And I'll be back again next week. 